I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam Podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on day 244 of the pandemic, and also just 69 days until President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris take office. Assuming everything continues to go well, who in the hell knows what's going on? Great show today. Lorraine Brown, whose book Uncoupling is out in the UK in February of next year. You can pre-order that through Waterstones now, and it will be coming to the US under the title The Paris Connection. Lorraine is wonderful. She lives in London, and she has such a fantastic story. And I found out after this was over, this was the first interview that she'd done. She had trained as an actress. She's just completed her uh, final year of a postgraduate diploma in psychodynamic counseling. She has done all of these amazing things. She was in fashion journalism school. And in 2018, she was one of 11 mentees chosen to be part of the Penguin Random House's 2018 Right Now program, which aims to launch the careers of writers from underrepresented communities. Uncoupling came out of this project, and it's her debut novel. And it's been doing and getting some amazing reviews. So we'll get to all that in just a few minutes. But first, we have a little business to cover. As you know, if you've been here, we have two shows a week, every Monday and Thursday. There's two things you can do to help us out. First, leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember that peer pressure works. Tell your friends about us. We also host a monthly happy hour, which you can find the information out at thewritersjam.com. We are changing things up a little, so there's going to be information about that coming soon. 
But head on over to the website anyway. While you're there, you can buy the book of anybody who's been on the program. Click on our bookshop link. When you do that, you're not only supporting local and independent bookstores, but we get a little scratch back from that as well. And while you're at the website, you can sign up for the monthly newsletter where we have book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, and other cool things happening around the web. Lastly, you can support the entire Solid Listen Network by clicking on that Patreon button. When you do that, you get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and some bonus content, and it only costs you a couple bucks a month. All right, we've been leaning into the heavy intros the last few weeks just because at least here in America, the goddamn world is on fire, both on fire out in the West Coast, but also with this election stuff and the pandemic. But re-listening to today's program and having talked to Lorraine in the month or two since we did this interview, it just reminded me of how wonderful it is to talk to people who have spent their life trying to write, trying to get their book published, trying to break through, and then finally getting there. And her story which you will hear, is a ridiculous number of times that it appeared that she was going to make it. All signs pointed to go. Everybody was telling her to start the engine, only to have that all fall apart at the last second. And that's demoralizing. If you have spent your life trying to create things, having it happen once is hard. Having it happen repeatedly is really difficult to explain unless you've been there. It is heartbreaking because creating is hard enough as it is particularly as a writer because you're doing that alone you're doing that largely you know in your house at your desk or whatever and you have people along the way but the process is really driven by you add on to that which you will hear the fact that she came from a working class background she's a woman of color all of these things all of these hurdles, all of these roadblocks in front of her. Just, it's amazing to me that she is as positive as she is and as tenacious as she is. And also, one of the things that was most enjoyable about the conversation was our discussion about the recognition of what the forces around us can do to us emotionally, mentally, without us even knowing it. So we talked a little bit about therapy and we talked a little bit about how important it is to sort of get through those roadblocks. That's step one. But step two is also acknowledging how difficult that is and what that does to you as a person and as a writer and how once you sort of see those structures and once you start doing the work, how that both grounds you in your own voice but helps propel you forward. And... After we had done the interview, she was so great. Like, it was such a smooth, fun interview, and we were laughing and, and doing the things that if you listen to the show, particularly when I get working-class writers on the show, there is a flow that happens. And then for her afterwards to tell me that that was the first time that she had done an interview like this was stunning to me, but also is a testament to getting through, persevering, and then doing the work to understand your emotional and mental health, how important that is, right? Because, yeah, this was the first time she did it, and maybe 15 years ago, that interview would have come off completely differently. But now, she has a good sense of who she is and where she's going, and it's just lovely. And you'll hear that as we get to the end of the program. 
it's the last 15 minutes are my favorite part of the interview. Because at this point, it becomes humorous all of the times that the rug gets pulled out from under her. And as she's telling the story, she is laughing because you only have two choices, right? You either laugh or you give up, to which she did not. And, I mean, this came through fashion, journalism, acting, all of this stuff that she was doing, and but always writing along the way. So in this time, in this place where we are, particularly in America, having this conversation with Lorraine, who is British, you know, lives in London, was so refreshing and so joyful to me because it is just a reminder that art matters and your voice matters and that you just got to keep pushing forward, which all of us are feeling right now. And maybe for the first time in four years, we're a little hopeful about pushing forward. So anyway, I know the last couple weeks we've been leaning into the heavy, we've been leaning into the, to the scared and afraid and that's not what you're going to get here in this interview today. So I'm very excited for you to hear Lorraine. I hope you will all go out and buy her book, Uncoupling, which is out in February. And it's in the U.K., so you have to get it from Waterstones now until it debuts in the U.S. under the Paris Connection. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Lorraine Brown. Yes, I'm in London. I'm in North London, um, a place called Muswell Hill, which I don't know if you've ever heard of. I don't see why you would have done, but um, <laughs> it's very nice. It's very kind of villagey almost. Oh, that's very, nice. Very kind of leafy and green. Um, yeah, I love it. Lots of, well, usually lots of cafes and cinemas and restaurants. <laughs> but yeah, obviously not so much at the moment. Yeah, I've seen the pictures of you out and like, like every once in a while you'll post a picture of being outside and I'm like, oh my God, that looks like a lovely place yes. to be. On Saturday night, I went out into central London for the first time since lockdown, and it was amazing. I got the taxi driver to drop me off, just like as we went over a bridge over the Thames, and then I kind of just stared at the river and kind of realised how much I'd missed seeing that. And, yeah, it was really nice to be out. It felt kind of almost normal. Yeah, it's strange. Like, I have – there's a couple open-air bars here, and I will take – I used to go read – you know, I'd go sit and have a beer and I'd sit in, in one of these open air bars and I just started doing it again. And like, you know, they have everything sort of, you know, you're 10 feet away from everybody else. And, but just reading a book and having a beer in a place with like air blowing in and some people walking around, I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. Like maybe, <laughs> you know, like maybe. So are you, you're not from there. Where are you from London? Uh, well, pretty much. I'm from a small town just outside London, literally, just over the, you know, just outside. So it's a place called Potter's Bar. It's a very small town. Um, yeah, I hated it, to be honest. <laughs> Sorry if anyone's listening. <laughs> so did you have brothers and sisters? Or were you only child? I have a brother who's a few years younger. Um, oh, so you were the uh, first. You're the oldest. I was the first, yes. Um, so it was me, yeah, my brother, my parents, and then we had... Um, Tragically, my mum's mum died when my mum was very young. My mum was only two. And it's a really horrible story. They'd been out to watch a carnival, and my grandmother was hit by something falling off a building. Oh, and my God. Yeah, so my mum my was two, and her sister was four. So then a, a sort of family friend 
moved in with him to help look after them. Um, and she kind of lived with us as well until she died. So until I was about 13, there would be, you know, my parents and there would be, we called her auntie. So yeah. Yeah. Were, yeah. And was it a small town or a village? A small town. So, but it was just, I don't know. I found it very boring. <laughs> and I think I found it not inspirational, I suppose, but because I was so close to London, as soon as I could, I would just get the train. It's at 20 minutes on the train into central London and I would just go and wander around. And So that's what you were doing as a kid? Well, yeah, still teenage, yeah. But I mean, I, teenage, obviously not when you're six. Yeah, obviously not, no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, who knows? I don't know. Maybe you're one of those people that snuck out and were like, I'm going to the yeah, city. Yeah, no. I mean, that sounds cooler than it was because actually I was doing a bit of that, but I was also doing lots of hanging around McDonald's or, you know. Sure. Just outside the station. <laughs> <laughs> so, what, so were you and your brother close growing up? Um, I don't know. That sounds like a no. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, we're close. We've never really fallen out. We love each other very much, but I think we're quite different. I think, I don't know. I feel like I'm the kind of wayward one of the family. My brother's very, he's a Libra, maybe that's it. He's very balanced I don't ever remember him having big rows with my parents. You know, he's pretty much cruised through life, let's say, to a degree. Um, and and it's very, very charming. And I'm, yeah, I'm a bit kind of, yeah. That's so odd because normally the, the, normally the oldest one is the rule follower who's trying to please everybody, but that was not you. I mean, I did feel I was trying to please everybody, but somehow... <laughs> that didn't work out? <laughs> didn't work out. <laughs> so uh, what did your mom and dad do? So... My dad was a welder, so he'd come over from Jamaica um, in the late 50s, I guess, and worked as a chef in cafes and restaurants, and then pretty much my entire childhood he worked in a factory um, as a welder. And my mum worked in a residential home. Is it, I don't know if that's what you call it. You know, where yeah, yeah, yeah. Elder, like a, elder, like yeah. with elder folks. With elderly people, yeah. yeah. And it was actually at that time kind of a really nice community because lots of my friends' parents would also work at this residential home and my mum would work shifts sometimes night shifts or whatever um but there'd be lots of parties there and it was felt like a really nice community I don't think it's so much like that now but yeah yeah healthcare is definitely yeah a different beast today it's a different beast yeah so and what did what was your brother like 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 the two of you like what was he in school and what were you in school like how did you guys yeah he uh he was very popular and very we kind of had a kind of reverse trajectory, I suppose, because I started off being kind of top of the class. So when I left primary school, I don't know what yeah. you call that, but I went to senior school. I was kind of top of the class, top of the class. And then sort of slowly over time, everybody caught me up and then kind of, I wasn't top of the class anymore. I was kind of somewhere. I was like, oh, I'm actually going to have to do some work here. <laughs> but It's a terrible realisation, isn't it? It was, yeah. <laughs> I just kind of cruised through until I was about 16 and I was like, oh, shit, I'm going to have to actually do some revision or something. Um, I had the same life. Did you? <laughs> yeah. I was always really smart. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh shit, calculus. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. understand any of this. No, I had to do this weird math thing. Um, so normally you do your A-levels here when you're 18. But there's some weird thing that I did when I was about 15 or 16 because I was in the top set for maths. And they made me do this kind of advanced maths class. I'm not joking. I didn't understand an entire year, a word of it. <laughs> That was my year in calculus. I literally, when I was in middle school, I had tested in like the top 2% in the country. Like you take mm-hmm. this special test. Um, and I was getting, you know, letters from Harvard, like colleges to like, and then I got the calculus and I'm like, well, I don't, 
understand what you mean by the Y axis or the Z axis. It, like suddenly it went X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I don't know what Z means. <laughs> and that no, was no that. I don't. And yeah. you don't know what Z means. You don't know, you can't work the rest of it out. Yeah. yeah. No, just... So I became a writer. <laughs> <laughs> so were you like, is that, did you read and write as a kid or were you like me? Were you like a math person and you were like, oh, this is it. And now it's not it. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, definitely was not a math person. Um, <laughs> I was I was very into I, I loved writing stories I loved reading I just, just spend all my lunch hours at school in the library reading kind of well, well lots of different things but a lot of kind of teenager love stories I was obsessed with like I don't know just that romantic dream yeah <laughs> whisked away from my small town and taken somewhere more exciting um by some kind of hot guy or something but <laughs> so I spent a lot of time in the library reading romance um <laughs> but I decided quite early on well but I wanted to do something very exciting. So I kind of got very much into fashion when I was kind of in, sort of about to finish school. And I ended up going to fashion college. Really? Um, mm. Where so, at? So the London College of Fashion. Holy crap. So like yeah. you did it for real. Yeah, I did it for real. And I remember on my first day, I was like, oh my God, like what is, who are these people? Because I'd come from this suburban town where, you know, you know, different types of people with parents doing different types of jobs. But when I got to fashion college, I realized it was... I think I was probably the only non-white person. Um, I was probably the only working class person. Yeah. And everybody else was just like, yeah, my dad, um, yeah, he was a record producer or, you know, my dad is a journalist. I was like, oh, my God, my dad's a welder. Like, this is, this is weird. Um, so it, it felt strange, I guess. <laughs> when I went to graduate school, it was the same way. Like, I, obviously, I was not a person of color, but I was like the only poor kid that was there. Mm. Um, I went to Berkeley, which is like a, it was a big, oh, yeah. it was a big school for what I did as a top four um, school in journalism. And like, everybody went to Harvard, Duke, like their parents were like, oh, like I'm the ambassador for whatever. And I was working three jobs. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. So they're like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? I'm like, uh, I'll be at work. <laughs> Me too. I had these two awful jobs, one in a shop on a Saturday, and then on a Sunday I'd work in a like a, a service station on a motorway. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I worked third shift at a gas station. Mm. I 100% understand exactly what did <laughs> yeah. you do there. I was like in the sort of canteen serving. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, breakfast, teas, yeah, clearing tables. That's nice. Yeah. <laughs> I was the person that you paid for gas. Oh, okay. That's what I did. Yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. I get it. Like, yeah, it's a, yeah. And when you go there um, to do the fashion stuff, know that you were like the poor kid when you went there. Or was it not until you showed up that you're like, oh shit? Like, yeah, it was not until I showed up because I think I, I don't know. I've been such a dreamer all the way through childhood and adolescence, and sort of no one had really told me that I couldn't do anything. And so, in my mind, I could do whatever I wanted to do. And so, it was a bit of a shot to get there and find out that no one else like me is doing this, but. That's okay. So I had a big chip on my shoulder. Like, like it, I mean, even to this day, I sort of still have a chip on my shoulder about that. Did you, did that, was that something that you experienced when you were there? Like, oh, like, did you feel like an outsider or did you just sort of dive in and go, no, I just dived in. I think I was in complete denial. It's only really recently starting and I had some, I trained to be a counselor recently, which is another story altogether, but I was trained to be a counselor and had to have lots of personal therapy myself for the first time. And, I don't know, just that kind of stuff kind of opens you up a bit, doesn't it? It makes you think a bit more deeply about some of those things that happened in the past. And I think, yeah, I was just in complete denial and just 
rolled with it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't until I was in my forties that I started to see a therapist and I was like, I don't like, I've told people when you fight your whole life, you don't realize that you're fighting all the time. Mm. And like, when you reach a certain point, you're like, I don't, I don't have to fight anymore, but all I know how to do is fight. (laughs) Yeah. Did you sort of like, is that sort of what you went through? Like that? Oh shit. I didn't realize how angry I was about all of this stuff. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. <laughs> Especially recently, very much so. Yeah. What's that been like? Yeah, it's um <laughs> where to even begin. I don't know. And I've actually had some really lovely conversations with friends, but some also I don't know. I guess some other people have not talked about it at all, which is also weird. But you know, I had a really good conversation with a friend on Saturday who's like, I never realized that you might have experienced things like this, that life might be more difficult for you than we'd realized and it just hadn't dawned on on her that she's like because we've always had the same sort of jobs and you speak a certain way and you know you've never talked about it I just assumed that you know you've had an easy life in a way a similar life to me and now I know that you haven't and it's yeah it's a, it's both infuriating and liberating at the same time isn't mm, it mm. <laughs> yeah uh, you know, I can only speak of it as like the working class. Obviously, like uh, you know, I don't. Uh, America is set up for people that look and sound like me. So, in a certain way, like I have, you know, started on second base. But being a poor kid, having that class thing, as I've talked to my graduate school friends, um, and again, many who are, um, it was a very diverse group of people. I've told them like I was angry that whole time. Like you guys were going, like you never had to worry about money. And literally, I painted the J school. Like I painted the school where they were going. So like they'd be going to class, and I'd be painting the school and going to school at night. And I'm like, do you understand like how humiliating that it was? And they're like, mm. no. And I'm what like, what did they right. say? They didn't realize. No, no, they didn't really understand that. Like that was um, an experience that. But I was like, well, what was I going to do? Like, my, my choice was to go back to my small town. Like, mm. And I, like, I think like you, I was like, well, I don't want to die there. I, you know, I like it, but I need it out. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And so, but do you find yourself wanting to write about that kind of stuff? Like, do you find that beginning to creep into, like, what you want to say? And it's just beginning to creep in, I suppose. I don't know. It's difficult. Yeah. I feel like if I want, if I was going to write about it, I'd want to do it properly. And I've read a couple of the type of genre that I, I write. I've read a couple of books lately where there's been a kind of mixed race protagonist and that's great. Written by sort of a white author. That's great. But I don't think they've necessarily touched on some of the things that I would feel like I had to touch on if I was going to put that in my book. Um, And so at the moment I haven't, and it's something that I want to do in the future. And it's just starting to creep in about, yeah, thinking how, when. Do you think it'll be fiction or nonfiction? I've never thought about writing nonfiction. Really? Mm. Yeah, I can't imagine writing nonfiction, but yeah, never say never. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, to like suddenly to like be a writer and then to like go through this therapy stuff and suddenly like have this other voice appear. We're like, oh shit, I think there's other things that I need to say. Yeah. (laughs) Or want to say, like, whatever. Therapy is just mad, isn't it? I think <laughs> nobody, like, none of my friends or family have ever had therapy outside of the people I met on the, on the, on the course. Um, so that's weird. So I was having kind of, kind of epiphanies and kind of these feelings being stirred up. And there was, and everyone just thought I was going a bit mad, I think. But I it getting, is, right? It is madness. It is madness. But it's, it's, 
it's the madness of seeing things that you didn't see before, right? Mm. Like, it's not actually crazy. It's like, how did I not see any of this stuff? Yeah, and how's nobody, everybody else is still not seeing it. Right, um, right. So you feel a little gaslit as you go out in the world, like, am I crazy? And you're like, no, yeah. no, no, I'm not crazy. Like, this is a fucked up world that we're living mm. in. And I was just having this conversation with a friend of mine last night. She is like going through a meltdown and I'm like, you're seeing things now that you've tried not to see your whole life. And once you see them, they ain't no one seeing it. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Yeah. So you're in fashion school and like, is that what you think you're going to do? Like, do you, like you go there and you're like, oh, I'm going to be a fashion designer. Like that's going to be what I do with my life. Yeah. Well, actually I was doing fashion journalism. Really? That was the, that was the course. Yeah. So so you were going to be a writer, like that I was, was going to be like... a writer, yeah. But I thought I wanted to write about fashion. I thought I wanted to work on a magazine. Um, so when I finished there, and I'm sure it's it's probably I'm sure it is much worse now. There there were no jobs. You know, those jobs were few and far between on magazines. Yeah. So what what you had to do was do like an internship. So I did an internship for two or three years, just at different magazines, different newspapers, different PR companies, while still doing these terrible jobs at the weekends and holidays, whatever. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's like two different worlds in a way. So I'd be, you know, one day on a shoot, like a fashion shoot or a model casting or something, and then I'd go home to my hometown for the weekend and just sort of go down the local pub, you know, get drunk, whatever. Right. <laughs> just, just live that kind of suburban life. And Yeah. So you were, li- were you living back at home? Yeah, I was living at home the whole time. Oh, hmm. man. So, like, this is really, like, you're in, you are in, you're in almost three different worlds. Like, yeah. your parents' world, like, this sort of, like, working class try do I make it on my own and then like model shoots yeah yeah it was very weird (laughs) yeah it must have been difficult Uh, it must have been difficult to have a social life because none of those three things really cross they do not cross and none of my friends ever met each other I don't think once or twice so I'd have my friends from fashion college who were very different from my friends from home yeah and I never wanted them to meet because I knew I'd be kind of very anxious about it which perhaps wasn't fair but that's how I felt yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a true thing. <laughs> yeah, that's how I felt. Anyway. Yeah. No, again, like, I feel like I see you. I, un- like, <laughs> I understand this in a deep way. And it's also, you're switching between these different worlds on a regular basis and, like, never probably feeling yourself. Yeah. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yeah, that's very true. Never quite being myself, because I remember... I don't know, the people would say to me in my hometown, God, just say, you know, they'd sort of say things like... Oh, you're posh, or you, I don't know, somebody accused me of being a bit up myself once, or that kind of thing. And then I'd go to the other world and I'd feel unposh, let's say. I'd feel the opposite of posh. <laughs> yeah. When I was young, we had a, ba- I was, my town had a really good, my baseball team was really good. We were best team in the city. Uh, and I was the shortstop. So I was like, this shortstop on this team, whatever. And my friends called me the professor from the time I was a kid. Like that was just what, and it was like, you know, it was very clear that I was, that they thought I was different than them. Well, I loved them, but it was very clear that like that. And then I go to Berkeley and I'm the poor kid painting. And I'm like, well, how can I be the fucking professor here and the dude painting the walls here? Like, I don't know who I am. No, completely. (laughs) That's exactly how I felt. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a, it is, I don't think people that haven't gone through that. And again, like, I only speak on the class thing. And so you, you put race and gender on that and that's double, triple, right? Like mm, I mm. Even with all that other stuff, but it tears you apart because you never really get to ask yourself, who are you? You're always trying to navigate the things around you and never asking yourself, like, what is the thing that makes me happy? What is the thing that I want to do? Yeah, completely. Um, and it's weird because when you're in it, a bit like we said earlier, when you're in it, you're not really, you can't see all of this, can you? It just feels like you're on this kind of weird treadmill. Yeah trying to fit in here, trying to fit in there. But um, it's kind of exhausting when you think about it. I've had um, Aviza Jeter on the show, and she, uh, she's a poet and an editor, mm. um, African-American woman. And she said, like, 
the amount of energy you spend trying to navigate that stuff takes away from your creativity. Like imagine if you didn't have to do any of that stuff, like what I could have created. And I'm like, yeah, no, I like, I understand that as much as I can understand that because, Mm. you know, did you reach a point where you were like, I don't even give a shit about any of that stuff. I don't think I've reached that point yet. Not quite. Mm, Honestly, no, not quite. Getting there. (laughs) (laughs) So you finish school, you are doing these internships, home, Drinking in the pub. Drinking in the pub. Uh, what happens after that? Like, what? Like, is there something that you're like, okay, I need to like, I need to get started with some stuff. So then I finally, somebody, that, so one of the fashion editors where I was doing an internship left to work on a different magazine, and she said to me, "Do you want to come with me as my assistant?" So this was finally after two or three years. Yes, yes, this is all happening. So um, this was a magazine the BBC used to have called Clothes Show the fashion magazine so I went to work on that as a fashion assistant which was amazing what again does a fashion this, assistant do fashion assistant assists on shoots like kind of works in the fashion cupboard so I spent like I don't know eight hours a day in this kind of cupboard full of clothes sorting them out sending them back to PRs helping to style them I mean yeah more model castings I got to go to Morocco I mean this was so I don't think had I been anywhere at that point I'd been a couple of places in the world maybe like France and Germany but I got to go to Morocco on this fashion shoot which is wow very exciting um so it was a very cool job but then after about 18 months or so we got called into the office and told that the magazine was folding (laughs) and we were all being made redundant and I literally (laughs) just started crying and sobbed so hard because I just thought it's taken me three years to get this job and I finally got this job and I'm finally, you know, learning the ropes, getting in there and everything was gone. It's, so I was gutted. Had you, was that your only job? Like you'd quit the other jobs? Like you were like, oh, this I'm doing this full time now. Yeah, I had oh, a full time yeah. proper job earning, you know, not an amazing amount of money, but, you know, for the first time in my life, a decent yeah. wage. Not um, hourly. <laughs> not hourly, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they tell you that it goes away. And so you have this, like, what happens? Like, you, like what happens after that? Yeah, so after the crying subsided. <laughs> um, like three months later, <laughs> three the crying months subsided. <laughs> I just started applying for random jobs, thinking, oh, I've just got to keep going with this. And I applied for a job in Liverpool. Um, they were opening... There's a kind of TV station they call Granada, and they were starting a home shopping channel. But they wanted particularly people that had worked in different fields. So they were looking for people that had worked in fashion as well as other things. So I applied for this job. I'd never been to Liverpool. I'd never worked in TV. I'd never particularly wanted to work in TV. But I thought, all right, I'm just going to apply for this job. And got the job. Um, and honestly, it was the best thing I ever did because it finally got me out of Potter's Bar, my hometown. And so I left... My parents home and went to live in Liverpool. There are um, many people that are like Liverpool was my way out. <laughs> it, exactly. <laughs> Actually, my boyfriend, my partner is from Liverpool, and he <laughs> left Liverpool just as yeah. I was arrived. <laughs> <laughs> that is normally the way I know it. Yeah, happens. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I think because it was a brand new station, and they'd got kind of they basically employed loads of really young people and paid them hardly anything. <laughs> so. It was almost like a bit like being at university in a way. So we all, you know, worked together all day and then went out together all night and parted or whatever. And I met some really, really good friends I'm still um, very close to. What and did then, you do? Like, were you on air? I was, a, no, I was a, I was a producer when I left. I was a kind of a researcher, I guess, gotcha. when I first started. So that was fun. But while I was there, my career took another weird turn. I'd always wanted to be an actor. 
And it'd been something that I'd always wanted to do when I was young, but was quite shy and didn't really, you know, push myself. And I got talking to another girl and she said, I've always wanted to be an actor. Why don't we go and do some acting classes together? So that's what we did. And we both got hooked, especially me. And that took me off on a whole different trajectory whereby I was like, I'm going to be an actor now and I'm going to go to drama school. So... What, where, where did you take class? Like, did you go to a university or did you go to like a local theater and like take their? Yeah. So in Liverpool, it was just like a little local theater. Um, I kind of got, I kind of got the buzz then. And so I, after a couple of years, moved back to London and went to one of the big London drama schools and did a sort of evening course. Which one? Um, Mount View. Okay. Um, and. Is that like so, a, is that like a master? Is that like a postgraduate so this was a kind of, this, this stage was like a foundation in acting. Gotcha. So this was just my first kind of foray into it. So again, I got, what did I do during the day? I think I temped or something. Just some separate, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. yeah. Lots, whatever whatever, whatever I had bill. to do. Yeah. Yeah, whatever to pay the bills. Did this in the evening, two or three times a week. I was like, yeah, this is amazing. This is what I want to do. Saved up as much as I could and then started applying for post-grads um, all the drama schools. So I auditioned at RADA, obviously didn't get in. Um, <laughs> were you like acting or were you just in classes? Like, were you actually like going and auditioning and in plays and stuff like that? Or were you just taking the stuff at the time? At this stage, just taking classes. So Really? So for like yeah. two and a half, like you, you just went to classes in Liverpool and then classes down in London? Yeah, just classes, 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 movement classes, voice classes, singing classes, everything. It was like my dream. I was like why do you think it. you didn't? Why do you think you didn't audition? during that time it, it seems weird to like do all this stuff but like well I don't want to actually be in a play yeah well I did want to be in a play but I'm very kind of I don't know maybe it's because I'm a Capricorn but very kind of methodical about things I'm like well I want yeah before I start auditioning I want to be really good and know that I'm good enough and really learn my craft and work hard on it so that's kind of what I did you had some internal stuff that you're like I will not do this until I am the best at it until I'm the best so of course at drama school when I did the postgrad it was another situation whereby I think I was the only one that had to work weekends and I think I had um, some sort of hardship fund that helped me with fees and, <laughs> and you know, the usual. But um, they were all very nice. When um, you showed up, though, did you, like, so when you, when you do the evening stuff, did you know that's what you were walking into this time? Were you like, well, I'm going to be different than everybody else? Or did you walk in again and you're like, eh, this will be great. I found my people. And then you're like, yes. oh, shit. Like, <laughs> Somehow, I'm I don't know them. how. I was still shocked. <laughs> because the evening class had been more diverse and had been, yeah, been much more diverse, actually. Yeah. And I think I'd been, oh, yeah, this is cool. Yes, I found my tribe. This is it now. And then went to a different <laughs> drama school for postgrad and realized, yeah, no. <laughs> same people. They all same people. Came, they came from the fashion program into this damn thing. <laughs> so what school was it that you go to? So this was called East 15 Acting School, which no one's ever heard of, but it is a very good drama school over here. Um, and um, it's very method acting. So we spent a lot of time, like one particular play we were doing, I think we were doing The Crucible or something. We had to spend two days outdoors, completely outdoors, as though we were living um, the characters' lives for real. And it was freezing. I remember there was snow on the ground. And yeah, I just had to stay in character for two days straight. So yeah, that was... That sounds terrible. It was, yeah, <laughs> kind of terrible. Yeah. And, you know, just the whole drama school vibe. So many, I don't know, you know, there'd obviously be favourites. There'd be sort of pretty girls that would get all the leading roles. And then there'd be people like me that would get crap roles. And then there would be always people crying because things would come up for them and be triggered. Always people crying or storming out, running out. Um, it's just very, yeah, full on, let's say. 
Yeah. So you did that, but you, so how long is it? Was it like a year, two years? It was a year. So, so that's intense. Know, it's intense. And, you know, generally you would perform something in class or sort of termly plays and then you would stand up, you know, then you'd get feedback from the tutors and they would literally rip you apart in front of everybody. I mean, that was like 90% of the time. It would be like, what were you even thinking? You weren't connected. You weren't this, you weren't this. That was awful. And you just, yeah, try not to cry again. Um, and move on to the next thing. And I don't know, it just was constant. Yeah. The, the, yeah. So I, I kind of felt like when I became a writer, surely I'll be able to deal with rejection really well because I've been through all of this, but somehow it was still difficult. But It's a different kind of rejection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a, I feel like it's a deeper one because you spend so much time on the mm. writing, whereas the acting is happening in real, like if somebody doesn't like something, you have a chance to redo it or you have yes. a chance to fix it. But the writing, if they don't like it, it's like, well, that's the best I have. Like you see the best that I got. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to go sit in the corner for a while and drink this bottle of tequila. Yeah. (laughs) So you finished the acting program and and Mm -hmm. do you decide like, do you feel then like I am now good enough to go do this stuff? Yes, I do. So the first thing I did was I flew to an audition in Dublin. I mean, that was terrible because I literally couldn't do an Irish accent, but kind of lied and said that I could and got flown to Dublin to do this audition, this TV show. And it was just... So right out of, like right out of the gate, you get a TV audition. Yeah. But um, obviously I flunked it because my accent was crap. Because you're here on the program talking about your book. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So I started out like, yeah, very positive. This is great. Signed up to a few temping agencies, carried on doing temping during the day and audition when I could and got an agent and nothing really happened I mean I probably got one audition uh, maybe one or two auditions a year I'm talking a year really um so how like what what was happening in your head as that was going on that had to be rough it was rough and I kept doing classes so I'm sure it's the same over there, especially in LA. You know, you just do evening classes, like casting directors, and that's a chance to network and meet them. And then, you know, obviously, if you've got enough money, you can do fringe theatre. So you could do theatre for, for free. Yeah. I can never really afford to do that because I was always working. Um, and then you'd invite casting directors. So, you know, I just kept the positivity. But, yeah, it was kind of upsetting. Yeah. that's And it- a bit embarrassing, actually, because, you know, everyone's like, oh what's happening with your acting or, you know, how long are you going to give it? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming that you had for a long time, just that sort of feeling of like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. why can't I get over the hump when I'm seeing other people get over the hump? Mm-mm. No, I did have that very much so. And you're right now. It's the time when it's starting to kind of come together to my head. And I'm starting to think, well, surely I wouldn't be such a, you know, I wouldn't be the writer that I am, I suppose. I wouldn't be able to write the stories that I, I do if I'd had this kind of perfect, privileged, nice, easy ride. It's, but it's, you, I think maybe like me, you had, I had a vision of what my life was going to be. And that was based on a, you know, I was never going to get there. I didn't mm, realize that same. at the time. And then when, now that I sort of settled into this, I'm like, oh oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it just took me longer to realize that um, because I didn't have the things other people had. Yeah, completely. Well, I actually found myself living the life I wanted to live and I thought, this, this is it now. So I went to LA. So when I was, so, so I was doing the acting, thinking, right, I know, I'm sure 
if I go to America, they're going to love me. It's going to be much more successful. And, this, and so um, I sort of helped organise this programme for British actors to go out to LA for two months and work with an acting coach out there and sort of... And it's during pilot season and Oscar season, all of that. Um, and... The dollar was the pound was really high. To, you know, yeah. the rate was really was really amazing. Back so, when it was like two to one. Like, yeah, two to one. Yeah, yeah. Because so I, I was going over there and I'm like, shit, oh, this you is going- terrible. Yeah, I, this is how yeah. come I know that. Yeah, exchange rate. Yeah, see, so yeah, I got it the right way around. <laughs> yeah. so we, we like rented this house in West Hollywood and then uh, we did classes every day and we went to parties and posh hotels in the evening and any restaurant we wanted to go to, we could afford all of a sudden. Right. Um, and it was yeah, I was like, this is. My best life. This is it. This is it now. How old were you when that um, was happening? How old was I? Like late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, like that. yeah. So like literally, yeah. it's like you are at the best you're ever going to feel. Like that's yeah. the time of life. That must have yeah. been great. It was great. It was great. Um, <laughs> for two months. <laughs> for two months. Yeah. And I did feel, you know, and I don't know whether this is an American British thing, but I, everybody felt more enthusiastic about about acting, but about my acting specifically, and I felt, yeah, this, you know. This is going to come, something's going to come of this. But of course, I had to go home. And of course, I couldn't really afford to go back anytime soon. And <laughs> so, how, so, how many people came over with you? There were about 16 of us. Did anything happen for any um, of them? A couple of people have stayed over there. One, uh, one girl was already in a quite famous pop band. So she was doing her own thing anyway. So that was cool. And there were lots of people, lots of Dutch people for some reason. So I shared a house with two Dutch people. Um, and what yeah. made you put that together? I think I just got chatting to an acting coach and she was like, oh, well, she suggested it. She was like, I was thinking of getting a, a bunch of kind of British actors over um, to do this program. Would you help me? So I kind of was like, yeah, sure. And so she gave me a free place on the course, which was, I don't know, I think it cost about $3,000 or something. She gave me a free place on the course. And in, in return, I drummed up the interest for her, did all the admin, you know, helped yeah. everyone with questions. And so it worked out really well. Yeah. It, but again, like, that's the sort of thing you do when you're hustling. Like, yeah, yeah free? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I will absolutely do whatever you need. And then mm. you're out along the way. So yeah. when you came back, like when you left, went back home, did, what were you thinking? Like, oh shit. So you just had this great time. Didn't sort of work out the way you wanted. Mm. Were you like, well, I'm going to plow myself into acting here. Or were you like, maybe this is not going to happen for me. No, was, I'm going to plow myself into it here. But in the meantime, I need money. So <laughs> me, my boyfriend and I decided we wanted to buy a flat or you know, buy, buy a property. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to get like a full-time job. But in my mind, I was like, well, I'm only going to have it for a little while because then I'm going to get an acting job and I'm going to leave this this secretarial job and you are the eternal optimist (laughs) yeah that's great because I mean look as a like it's the only thing you can do right because the alternative is to just quit and give up yeah (laughs) exactly well there is no alternative so yeah so I took this full-time job working in a school well I did various jobs but yeah ended up working in a school this kind of prep school do you know what that is like a private school yeah um, I mean, I didn't go to one, but I'm familiar with them. <laughs> <laughs> me neither. Yeah. Um, they let me walk by them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was, another, again, that was another introduction to another type of world. There were lots of footballers' kids there, and there were um, yeah. lots, of, lots of other very successful parents. And I was in the office, and everyone was very nice to me, but I was you know, very much doing an, an admin job, which I didn't want to be doing, really. Um, and but you get to leave it when the day's over. Like, it wasn't a thing you took home with you. Like, when it was done? no. 
Exactly. That was the only advantage. Um, yeah. yeah. Then I would do acting classes in the evenings or whatever. That went on for a while. This is a very long story, isn't it? You're thinking, my God. No, um, I love these stories. That is why I do the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so then, this was now, let me think, I guess around 2010. My dad got very ill and died, sadly. And I think it was something about that moment where I just thought, okay, I'm stuck in this job. By this point, we had bought a flat. So I had a property, I had a boyfriend. That was great. But outside of that, I'm stuck in this job that I hate. My acting career is obviously not going to happen. That's the point, I think, at which I realised it wasn't going to happen. You know, and my dad had had this really... All his life, he really loved cars, like expensive cars. But, of course, you know, he was a welder and he didn't really have the funds. But somehow, I don't know what happened. I think they inherited some money somehow. And my dad had got enough money to buy a really lovely car and he bought a Lexus which he was so excited about, a convertible. Um, and it was just like his dream car. But anyway, we sold the car and my mum gave me a little bit of money and she was like, you know, do something nice with it. And I thought, okay, something has to change. And so I thought, what else do I want to do that's creative? I've got to do something creative. Or well, the only other thing I want to do is write a novel, but you know, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Wait, so that was the thing that you were like, well, I can't do. The other stuff, you're yeah. like, I'm doing all this. And then I know. you're writing and you're like, well, that's, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, because I just thought I should want to, you know, I wish I wanted to be, I don't know, a teacher or, you know, something sensible. I thought, I thought the idea of writing a novel was another unsensible thing. But I thought, right, I'll do one course and see if I, how many good. <laughs> so I used the money to pay for this sort of uh, creative writing beginner's course at Central St. Martin's. Do you know, it's like an art, big sort of art school over here. Very trendy and um, did a sort of six-week course there, six or six or seven weeks. And of course, I was like, yes, this is it. Like, I don't know, finally, it sort of came much easier to me than acting or fashion had. Really? I wasn't, you know, by any means amazing, but it felt familiar. It felt more me. It felt quieter because, you know, obviously with acting, you're kind of putting yourself out there. Yeah. In a very it's obvious surface, way. Like, it's always, yeah. like it, is, it is happening in real time. Yeah. And, for, you know, I'm, as I said before, quite a shy person, so it wasn't easy for me to do. But writing felt like something I could do quietly on my own. Obviously, we had to read things out to the class, which was terrifying, but... But you at yeah. least had some... You at least had a background in that where it's like, look, as a writer, that's the worst thing in the world to do. You, you had done acting, so it couldn't... Yeah. You, you were way ahead of the game in terms of that. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say it felt more you, what does that mean? Like, what, what, what do you mean, like, it felt more natural or it felt more... Yeah, I think I'm better at expressing myself, now I come to think of it, in writing than I am vocally. So obviously being an actor is... is <laughs> as large largely vocal um but for example and if we've got time i'll come on to this later but i did a counseling course i trained to be a therapist recently and all the all the stuff of getting up in front of the class and doing role plays was, i was hideous at but i kind of aced every single piece of written work and i was able to put myself very much into my written work in a way that i wasn't able to vocalize at all in the group um so yeah there's something about writing that just opens me up in a way that um talking doesn't when you have you tried to figure out where that came from because it it is it is an odd thing to like go your whole life and then suddenly be like oh this other thing is the way that i actually work best mm. i know i don't know if i was trying to prove something to myself or to other people or be seen somehow 
I don't know. I don't know what it was. Yeah, I haven't quite worked it out. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, you know, it's... Um, like, I always knew I was going to be... A, I always knew that writing was the thing I was going to do. I didn't know how to do it as a career, right? Which is why I ended up as a magazine journalist. Because I'm like, well, that's, that's the only place you can make money is in journalism. Mm. Like, nobody makes money as a writer just, you know, writing novels. Um, you know, where I was from, that wasn't a thing. No, so, no. But I was always from a kid. Like, I was always keeping journals. I was all like, I have, you know, 45 years of journals. Um, did you have any of that stuff? Or did it really sort of come later for you? Because you said you read and stuff when you were a kid. Like, that was a yeah. big part of your life. And I guess I started a couple of novels over the years, half-heartedly. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's always been in the back of my mind. But yeah some reason the acting just took over and I felt like that was the thing and that was what I was very focused on and I kind of feel like I sort of in a way took a wrong direction or didn't quite understand what my direction should have been but But again I got there and I think it's actually really helped me with writing dialogue I love writing dialogue I mean just what little I know about acting because you're so engaged in your emotions and particularly if you're doing method stuff Mm. you must have been constantly mining your own Mm. emotions which you have to do when you're writing characters and when you're writing scenes like right very much so very much and what i what we did so much work on at drama school and i take into my writing is is how people react to what you're saying so you'll say a line and then as an actor you're thinking okay let that line sink in how am i going to react to this and so this is back and forth of talking reaction talking reaction um and that's something i think yeah, has, has stood me well, actually, with writing. Yeah, I'm sure when you were in that program, it was why it felt natural to you because you had already done a bunch of writing work. It had just been mm. on the stage. Yeah. Instead of on a page, not to rhyme. Mm. That's a terrible, <laughs> nice that, is a, that is a terrible, <laughs> as it was coming out, I'm like, I don't know how else to say this without it sounding <laughs> completely dumb. But, you know, I've always told, like, I've interviewed um, improv actors on the program, and I tell people, like, they just write on stage. Like, they're writing. They're just doing it in a different way than people that write poetry and stuff. And if you don't understand that, then you don't understand what writing is because it doesn't have to be with a pen or on a computer. No, completely. Oh, my God, I was awful at improv. I mean, I just think maybe I couldn't do the two things together. I could not act and create a story and a character at the same time. And it was just, I found it mortifying. But yeah, yeah, I mean, people that can do it, wow. Mm. So why do you think you gravitated to novel writing and not like playwriting? Have you thought about that? Um, yeah, playwriting didn't even occur to me in terms of, I just, you know, <laughs> I just... I love that you did all that acting stuff and you're like, why would I do that? Why would I do that? Yeah. yeah. I put that behind me, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> I guess because all this time I was still reading a lot of novels. Yeah. Novels was what I went to, yeah. Outside of all of that, I'd still be reading lots. And, but I thought, I always thought I'd never be able to write a novel because I thought, how can you write something that long? It just baffled me. I was like, I'm never going to be able to write that many words. So I think, you know, that can be a big barrier, can't it, for writers? And it is scary. I hear this from everybody who's a novelist. Everybody said, like, well, that's impossible. Hmm. And then you write it and you're like, I actually threw out 50% more stuff than is in the book. Mm. <laughs> you're like, I actually wrote 150,000 words. <laughs> I wrote too many. <laughs> so you do the six-week class and what, like, what comes out of that? 
Like, is that the beginning of the novel or is that something like what happens with it? Mm, nothing came out that really in terms of, um, that was just really sort of doing lots of short stories and, and things like that. But then I signed on to another course, which was a novel writing course at a university called Birkbeck. Um, and that's when I started a novel, not this novel, not uncoupling, but <laughs> the novel I wrote before that. Um, yeah. Everybody's first novel is always like their third novel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a theme on the show. I'm always, whenever somebody says, has a debut, I'm like, but what, what was the first one about? Cause you've mm. either rewritten that one six times or there's like one or two that are in the drawer. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> so when you write the first one, do you even send it out? Or do you know, like, eh, this is not good? No, I sent it out. Yeah. Uh, and I did, uh, yeah, so sent it out, obviously got lots of rejections. And then I sort of got some Christmas money or birthday money or something and paid for um, this kind of, it was called Beat the Rejection Clinic. Then you could go and meet kind of a really sort of big agent. And I sent her the first three chapters and we met up and she told me what was wrong with it. But she was, she didn't tell me what was wrong with it. She was like very enthusiastic. She said, I think, you know, you're going to, you're going to get an agent, you're going to get a publishing deal, everything. You know, this is one of the best submissions I've seen. And I don't say that lightly. Send me in the whole book. No, send me the whole book. Is so this, I sent the, her, is that, this is the book that hasn't, wasn't published. Yes. Yeah. So I sent her the whole book and she didn't like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and her assistant wrote to me and said, you know, you know, send us anything else that you do, but this isn't <laughs> So, I, was not, yeah. I was not expecting that turn in that story. I know. <laughs> this is great. Just kidding. So that had to be rough. That I mean, it had to sort of make you feel a little bit like the LA trip, right? Like, or the, the Dublin thing. Like, Mm-mm. this is going to happen. And holy shit, is this happening to me again? Yeah. And I actually went to see a sidekick years ago. And she told me, it feels like your career is like, you're almost like climbing up a climbing wall. And then you slide down a few meters and then you climb up again. And then you slide, that's it. Yeah, that, that's exactly how it feels. Yeah, like, thanks for telling me that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when you get that rejection, what, like, what happened? Like, what makes you keep writing? Other than so, just, like, you yeah. know, quit. <laughs> A lot of the feedback I got for that novel was that it wasn't hooky enough, but it wasn't sellable enough. So then I so started it wasn't thinking... That it, it wasn't that it was bad. It was just no. marketing-wise, they were like, we don't know how to sell this. Marketing-wise, exactly. So then I started thinking a bit more about that. I guess I thought about it in a more business-like way and thought and started watching, I don't know, YouTube videos about commercial fiction and reading more commercial fiction and thinking, what do I need to do here? And came up with a story for Uncoupling and started writing it. And then a friend told me about a competition called the Bath Novel Award. And by this point, I'd only written maybe four or five chapters. She said, you should apply for it. So I sent my first few chapters off to the Bath Novel Award and got longlisted. But I hadn't finished the novel. (laughs) (laughs) So even in success, you're like, well, shit. Yeah. (laughs) Now I got to do this. Now I've got to finish it. Are you still the admin at the prep school? Yep, still at the admin at the prep school. So this is like you're doing this at night. Yeah, exactly. Um... And I think by this point, yes, I definitely did have a baby. Um, yeah, I so yes. wasn't going to bring that up, but yeah, like there's also <laughs> yeah. another the, human that doesn't yes, care actually, about there's another human. award. <laughs> exactly. So actually I got pregnant when I was on the, the second writing course. So by now I had a sort of two or three-year-old toddler as I was writing in the evenings. But obviously I had a baby that just wouldn't sleep. So it wasn't like I put him to bed at eight and then I had the whole evening. No, it was up and down, up and down. Um, but anyway, I somehow got... <laughs> <laughs> got this novel written and I sent it off and surprisingly I didn't get shortlisted shocker because how long never... you did or did not did not oh no 
I mean, I, I'm not surprised because I've wrote it so quickly. <laughs> um, but they gave me some really lovely feedback, which was really helpful. So it's, I think it's the most important thing, and people don't under people who are not writers don't understand. Like when I sent my my book didn't get bought. Um, but I got all this feedback from agents and it, they basically, I had 15 agents that gave me feedback and they all kind of said the same thing, which I oh, wow. sort of knew. And mm. it was one of those like, okay, like this is the thing I thought it was. And that's helpful in revising because I'm not crazy. Right. Like, so it must've been good to sort of get that. Did you know, like, did you recognize the feedback when you got it? Or were you like, damn it. <laughs> no, I was like, damn it. It's just quite a lot of us wrong with this. Yeah. <laughs> but you but it was helpful when you sat down and fix it. Mm, very helpful. So fixed it, fixed it, fixed it for I don't know, another year, maybe a bit less than a year. Yeah. Sent, entered another competition, which Penguin run. I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called Right Now. And it's particularly to find writers from underrepresented communities. So um sent off my work and how did you feel to, when you sent it off? Like, were you like, God, this is going to be another thing? Or were uh, you the uh, eternal optimist? Like, No, I, I had a good feeling about it. <laughs> I really love you. <laughs> Doesn't matter how many times you get hit in the face, it's like, no, nope, um, this is going to be the one that I break through on. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. And uh, won it, won the competition. The that Olymp- must have felt great. It did. It felt. Because, you know, of course, I'd never really won anything. I'd tried and tried and tried and almost yes. got there, but hadn't quite. Yeah, we've heard the story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did you have it like when they told you, did you have this like, well, this can't be right? Yeah, kind of. I mean, I, just, I was just baffled that something had actually gone my way and very excited <laughs> and thought, obviously, this is it now. This is it. Um, so I got mentored for a year by Penguin and we have various workshops as a, as a group. There were 11 of us being mentored. And then I had my own personal mentor who was an editor um, and we worked together on, on the book for a year. And then we started sending it out to agents. And I was thinking, and they'd sort of told us, oh, this is, you know, agents are going to be biting off your arm to represent you. They're going to be, you know, you've got Penguin behind you. Penguin, <laughs> Penguin, we're pretty much saying, you know, if we can, and you know, we really want to be able to give you a publishing deal here, but that may not happen. But, you know, you are going to go away with either an agent or a publishing deal. <laughs> Sent liars. it out. Liars. Yeah, liars. <laughs> Sent it out to four or five agents. I really, you know, had chosen carefully, thought carefully about. And my editor at Penguin wrote an accompanying letter for bigging me up. And I don't think I even heard anything back from three out of the four at all. Like nothing back. And the, the fourth one said, it's not for me. And I, that's probably when I kind of thought, oh, my God, not again. Yeah. I, it is amazing. And look, I hear, look, we just met, so I don't really know you that well, but I also hear a little bit of the pain and the laugh, right? Which is like, damn, like how many times is this going to happen? Yeah. (laughs) So I, I have a solidarity laugh and like, yeah, I get it. Like, it's one of those, (laughs) like, you just think like, and particularly if you're seeing other people and you're like, God damn, like. You're not yeah. going through this. And at this point, I'm assuming you you have writer friends. You know other writers who are getting published and things seem to be going easier for them. Yes, I did I did see that a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's hard not to be... I mean, you're both happy for it, but also angry because you're like, okay, what is it about me? Hmm. I know. I mean, actually, it, was, it, it did feel less... Because I do tend to... I, I do feel envy quite 
easily, especially <laughs> when I was acting. But this felt, I think with writing, it's a little bit different, isn't it? Because they're not just going to buy my book. They can buy lots of other people's books and my book. Whereas when you're acting and you're going for a particular role, yeah, more competitive, I suppose. Whereas, you know, I, even though I do feel envy of other writers at times, I also want them to do well and, and you know, want to be supportive. The rejection to me, I think we talked about it earlier, with books feels personal because mm. it's so, like, and again, I'm not an actor, but, like, you're inhabiting this other thing as an actor. So it's like, well, they didn't like my performance, but whatever. But if you're writing a book, it's your lens. It doesn't mm. matter even if it's fiction about a thing that has nothing to do with you. It is your story that you are telling, and they are telling you that your story is not a thing that anybody wants. Yeah. But, Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to go again. Tequila in the corner. That's where I'll be, you know, like weeping uncontrollably. So you get the rejection and what happened, like what, what comes next? Because the book obviously makes it out. It makes it eventually. So I send it out to a few more agents, a few more rejections, but are starting to get a little bit more feedback as to what might be going wrong with it. So have a re-edit, redraft it, and then... God, you had to redo it again. Redo so it. Three. So we're on, we're on draft three. Yeah, at least draft three. Yeah, at least. Uh, 33, <laughs> probably. And then <laughs> in the summer of 2019, I went to a few writing festivals and some kind of booked one-to-one appointments with agents. Yeah. And I don't know why, I just had a good... Well, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yet again, this, I had a good feeling. This is, I am so in love with you just because you're like, this is the one. Like, okay, yeah. Let's, yeah, yeah. Although we know we're now in 2019, so we we're know it's going to end well. Exactly. So I went to these festivals and had these one-to-ones and they were like very enthusiastic. And they were like, you know, this is one of the best submissions I've seen all day. And I want you to send me the full. This is the first time anybody had ever asked me for the full manuscript. So two or three people asked me for the full. And I'd also met another agent at the London Book Fair. She, I contacted her and said, oh, three other people have asked for the full. She was like, send me the full. So now yeah. four people have the full. Yeah. Once you get the first one and you can tell people like other yeah, people yeah. have requested, it's like, well, now all of a sudden it's the fucking horse race. I know. <laughs> yeah. So then I thought, I'm just going to send it to one more agent who's um, this agent called Hannah Ferguson, who I'd followed for years and years on social media and thought, oh, she looks really nice, which I know is maybe not <laughs> Maybe not. Everyone's prerequisite for an agent, but I always thought she looked like somebody that I would get on well with. Which is really important. This is one of the things that people don't understand. Like having an agent that you work well with is a big part of having a career. I think so. And I never wanted an agent I felt scared of because I had a couple of those when I was acting. I was too scared to ring. They're going to hate me and they're going to be so annoyed. Um, So I wanted somebody that kind of down to earth, approachable. Yeah. Nice. Um, so I thought I just sent it to her. So I told her I've got these four requests for fools. Just thought you might like to see it. And then went away. Oh, yes, got some rejections. Went away on holiday and got an email from this agent that I'd followed for years, the nice one. And she said, "I'm reading your book and really enjoying it. I'd love to meet you." Um, and you thought, "This is it. It's this is it." <laughs> <laughs> But it was actually it because I went to meet her and I thought she was going to say, Oh, you know, go away and revise it. Yeah, Yeah, I just wanted to meet you. Um, But she actually offered me representation, which felt, again, one of those moments like the penguin thing that felt very surreal. Yeah. Um, How long did it take her to sell it? So that was August, I think, October, we sold. So it happened pretty quickly. Yeah, pretty quickly. So we sold to the US, UK. And Germany really quickly. Wow, that's great. And so again, 
so talking about being in two different worlds, I was still in my secretarial job and the admin um, right. on the front desk. And I was getting these emails about offers, which were like for more money than, you know, I could, you know, for me, that was a lot right. of money. Um, and I was opening all these emails. And at the same time, the door was buzzing and I was letting in parents picking up their kids from like chess club or I don't know. Right. Right. And Yoga. they're not even seeing you. Like you're just. The See me. I'm just buzzing them in. Yeah. Just come in. Let me read my emails. You would want to tell them like, I'm important now. I'll get to you in a minute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. That must have, again, like, even, did you believe it until it, like, the check came and you saw it in a bookstore? Which I know it's coming out next year, but like, yeah. like, did you, like, when did you really believe that it was happening? <laughs> I know. Or, or, or you call me back when you believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I felt like I needed to see something in writing. And you know when someone says, oh, I'll send you the details over, I'll send you the contract over, but then it doesn't come for like a day. That whole day I'm refreshing my emails constantly. <laughs> like until I see it written down and I've signed something, they might change their mind. They might you know, read it again and think, no, it's crap. You know, change my mind. So you signed, you got it, and then they put it in the system. And it comes out, I think, what, February? February February. 18th? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Next year of 2021. Yes, so we so, are hoping that the bookstores are open then. I know, very much hope so. Although, yeah, I mean, do I really need a launch party? It would be fun, but I don't really like parties where I'm the centre of attention, especially if I have to do a speech of any kind. Here's the thing. It's your party, so you can do whatever you want. You can say, I'm going to have a launch party without a talk. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> just just drinks. Yes. <laughs> Lots of yes. drinks. Bring me pretty things <laughs> and bring drinks. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You should absolutely... <laughs> Because it, so how long from the time you started writing it to the time it came out? Like what, like how many so I years? guess it would be five years. Yeah. So fucking have a party, Lorraine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I deserve a party. Yeah, like <laughs> it's part of the thing that I do on this program is remind writers that like the party isn't a celebration of you. It's, a, it's an end to the project, right? Because yes. you're already done with it. So it's, and it, that is so that everybody else now knows, like, now it's yours. It's not like, because I'm assuming you're working on the next thing already. Yes, I am. Right. So the, the book is over for you. That party is the end of the project party. Yeah, that's a nice way of looking at it. Yes. That, mm. And that gets you away from feeling like it's about you. Because it was not about you the minute that they locked the edit. The no, minute that's you true. couldn't change it anymore, like, you got nothing else to do with that book. <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> You've got everything out of the process that you can get out of. So how do you feel about working on the new one? Do you um, feel like you have a better handle of what you're doing now than you did before? I do, and I've written, very, <laughs> I've written it very quickly. So the first one, as you know, took five years. Um, Actually, it took your whole life. The whole life, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's true, that's true. Yeah. Exactly. Um, this one, I started writing... Well, bearing in mind, I'd planned it meticulously, which I didn't do last time. Planned it meticulously over lockdown. I had these little post-it notes and I knew exactly what was going to happen when. Um, and then I started writing on the 17th of July. And I remember that. That's because when my little boy went back to school for two weeks over the summer. And so I <laughs> had like some I action. Two weeks, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> two weeks. So I started it then and I've pretty much finished the first draft. So... Yeah, obviously, it may be awful because I've literally followed Stephen King's advice and just written it and not gone back at all, not read anything back. So yeah. we'll see. I right. was, I mean, I was very much hoping to be writing this novel in coffee shops. I love writing. I also love writing on the tube or any public transport, really. Um, I've not been able to do coffee shops or public transport. So 
that's a shame, but next time. Yeah. But it's, I mean, like it, it, like it, sitting alone and writing by myself is, I find a miserable experience. Yeah. I do a bit too. Yeah. I don't know why writing people think that we're supposed to like sequester ourselves away from everything and like make genius in solitude. Like mm. that doesn't happen. No. Like people have their kind of writing sheds at the end of the garden. I was thinking, it looks a bit lonely. Yeah. All the way down the end of your massive garden. Yeah. <laughs> I, I interviewed a guy uh, uh, um, uh, who goes and writes in the park every day in New York City. Mm. And I was like, well, that feels like a lovely thing to do. Like two hours to just sit there and like hand write for his, you know, and he's written, I think, six or seven books. And I'm like, yeah, yeah that makes sense to me. Yeah, definitely. My little boy did a football camp over the, the sort of the end of the summer holiday, and I took my laptop down to the park. Although, let's say the weather wasn't particularly good, so <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't that that pleasant, to be honest. <laughs> right, but again, like life feeds art; it's not the other way around. Mm. You know, like you, you're, when your heart is full and when you're sort of happy or whatever, content, it is easier, I think, to create stuff than when you're miserable and lonely. Yeah, I think so. Well, I am so happy that we had this conversation. You are a fucking delight. <laughs> I feel like I kind of, yeah, took you on a bit of a weird journey there. But anyway, thank you for having but everybody's me. journey. Everybody thinks their journey is weird. Do they? Yeah. Everybody, like, every, and because nobody's is straight. Everybody's is circuitous. Everybody, like very few people, like when they're eight are like, this is what I'm going to do. And then just get them. Yeah. yeah. And if they do, they're probably horrifically boring. Mm. <laughs> the people I'm most interested in are the ones that are like you. They're like, this is going to be when it, when it happens. Like, the narrator comes in and is like, it did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you went on and you did the thing. And like, what a great goddamn story. And I'm so happy for you. And I cannot wait to read your book. Thank you very much for having me. It's been yes. Lovely. there you have it. That was Lorraine Brown, whose book Uncoupling is out in the UK in February of next year. And if you're here on this side of the pond, it will be coming to us as the Paris Connection. Hope you enjoyed listening to that. She is utterly charming. We had such a lovely time chatting. So I hope you also enjoyed listening to it. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard, and if you are still here, you liked what you heard, do us those two favors I asked at the top of the show. Leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about us. And while you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly McLear. If you can't wait for our new episodes, and remember they're out every Monday and Thursday, you can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Writer's Jam. Until next time, I will see you around the internet. Talmor is my home. My family have worked the land for generations. My grand says the island does not belong to us, but we belong to the island. And we must be ready, for a great evil is coming. And death follows with it.
Listen and subscribe to the latest season of Undertow, The Harrowing, a Storyglass production presented by Realm, available wherever you get your podcasts. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.